children can head off for Children's Church while they're heading out. I want to just remind you of several announcements. They were on the screen and they're in the bulletin, but sometimes we don't always check the screen or the bulletin. But on the 11th, we're having a special business meeting here, an annual business meeting. And the following Sunday, the 18th, uh, we'll have a new members class. And if you're not certain what a new members class is all about or whether you're a member or not, come and see me and we'll give you the information concerning that class. Next Sunday, we'll be celebrating 20 years of ministry at North Valley Bible Church. So let's uh, open our Bibles to the book of Philippians, and I will read the first two verses for us. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops or overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this was a special letter written to a group of people that Paul dearly loved. There was a special connection because of their giving to the Apostle Paul, their surrenderedness to take their resources and send it often to a man who was proclaiming the gospel. And through that, we see in this little letter a partnership in the confirmation and the defense of the gospel no matter where Paul was at. And Father, I pray that God as we work our way through this epistle, that God that it would saturate our church, that God that it would become a part of our thinking, that God that we are intimately woven together as a body of people and that what we do we do it corporately we do it together as a unit and God that as a church we can flourish and we can see your kingdom grow and be advanced across this this state this city this country and God as you prosper us and as you grow us Lord, it's our prayer that we will impact the world. This church will. God, you're able to do that. You took a church founded with a group of women that prayed together every Sabbath, and it became a church that impacted the Roman Empire because of their association, their partnership, their fellowship with Paul. God, I pray that we will hunger and desire to participate, to fellowship, to share corporately as a body in the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you will answer this prayer. I know that you will. God, we're looking forward to how you're going to work as we study, digest, memorize, but most importantly, as we live out the principles found in this letter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, you can be seated, um, we had a lesson on the new heaven and the new earth and some of the things that aren't going to be found there. And so, so encouraging. There'll be no tears. There'll be no sorrow. There'll be no death. There'll be no pain. And as we were worshiping together as God's people, I felt just a little bit of heaven. That in, in this time that we come together once a week, there was, there's, there's no pain. 
There's no tears. I, I know we all carry grief with us. We all carry sorrow and pain. But when we are in the presence of Christ, it's like a reprieve. We walk in here and it's a haven. It's a shelter. It's a rest. And we can experience eternal life right now. It's not something we have to wait for. Eternal life begins the moment you ask Christ to forgive you. The moment you place your faith in Him, eternal life begins. You are born again. Um, with all that said, let's, let's jump into our letter to the Philippians. And before we get there, I, I want to give you some, some background on the city of Philippi. The city of uh, Philippi was a, a very, very important city in the Roman Empire. We have a, a map up here for you, and I want to just point out to you where Philippi was. So there's the city of Philippi. And Paul was at Troas, and he was trying to go to several different places. He was trying to go to Bithynia, and he was trying to go to Mycenae, and the Lord just shut those doors. And while he was here in Troas, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. This is a Roman province, and it was named after Philip of Macedonia. Philip was Alexander the Great's father. And so we see that the city of Philippi is really close to the Aegean Sea. This is Neapolis. Paul landed there in Neapolis and then traveled about 8 to 10 miles to the city of Philippi. But it was a very, very important city at the time of Paul. And it had a rich history. The city, like I said, really began, it was a farming village on the Ganges River. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's not the Ganges, but um, this river was a, a, a place where trade was. And it was a plain, level area, so there was good agriculture there. But most importantly, there were gold and silver mines in this area, so it was a wealthy city. And so Alexander the Great uh, really made an a significant influence and, and populated this area. Um, the city had direct access, like I said, to the Aegean Sea. And so it was a major port. It had commerce. It had travel. It was wealthy because of the resources of mining. And later on in the Roman Empire around 168 BC, the Romans defeated the Persians at a battle here. Even though it was under the Romans' influence, it was the Persians and the Romans were still fighting for territory, but it was a soundly defeated battle. And so it became a part of the Roman Empire at that time. Later on in history, uh, there were two senators and one of them we remember his name is Brutus. And he and a co-conspirator decided to have Julius Caesar assassinated. And this was right around 45 BC. And they fled to the city of Philippi. And a couple of famous men, Mark Antony and Octavius, were two senators. And they opposed this civil war and they amassed at Philippi 200,000 soldiers. So from that time forward it became an outpost for the Roman Empire and a lot of Roman soldiers retired in the city of Philippi and so it became a prosperous city. Uh, people came there for trade. In fact a woman that we're going to hear about today, a woman named Lydia. She was a seller of purple cloth, and she came to the city to do commerce. And so it was a city that had a large population, but it was culturally very Greco-Roman. Little, to, to, if any, influence from Judaism. However, there was a small Jewish proselyte population in the city of Philippi. Um, Paul's custom when he would go to a new city was, was to find the synagogue. Uh, we often read through the book of Acts as Paul's custom was. He went into the synagogue and he would reason from the Old Testament scriptures and dialogue with them and convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. And he would do this week after week until he got 
ejected from the city or caused a riot or whatever. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue. Now, in order to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 leading men as elders. So there apparently was a very small Jewish population. And they met at the synagogue normally, but these ladies, no mention of men, met at the river. And we know from Josephus and other historians that the Jews that didn't have a synagogue, they would often meet in open areas, and there had to be sufficient running, clean, clear water for all of their ceremonial washings and cleansings. So Paul finds about this prayer meeting, and this is where he begins ministry in the city of Philippi. Um, the purpose of this letter that Paul wrote um, just a casual reading of the book of Philippians, just sitting down and, and just reading through it, maybe a chapter at a time, you'll begin to see that there was this an, uh, uh, affection, there was this bond, there was this mutual joy, and the fact the word joy is, is all over the book of Philippians. You can't help but find the word joy. The Philippians were Paul's joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And the fact that I'm in prison, I'm joyful that the gospel is going everywhere, regardless of what my circumstances are. So this letter, you just see this bond, this affection, this close-knit between Paul and this church. There's no doctrinal uh, uh, diversion from what is orthodox, what is sound Bible teaching found anywhere in this book. However... There is hints that there were problems in this church. One of the problems was the lack of humility, and the other problem, there was a little bit of dissension. There was disunity. And you can find the phrase, be of one mind, sprinkled throughout the entire book. And so there was, uh, that was another purpose in, in Paul writing this letter. Another purpose is that there was a man from this church named Epaphroditus, and he would take offerings that the church would take for the Apostle Paul, and he would take them to Paul while he was in prison. I, I believe Paul was imprisoned at Rome when he wrote this letter. Some uh, think that it may have been Caesarea where he was imprisoned. Others may be Ephesus. But as you read the letter, it sounds like it was the city of Rome because he talks at the end of this letter that the entire household of Caesar had been influenced because of his imprisonment. Paul expected to be released from this imprisonment, but whether he was released or not, that isn't what mattered to Paul. What mattered is Christ was being proclaimed. And so this is some of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter. Um, and the last chapter, the last paragraphs of that chapter, it's really thanking this church for their participation in the gospel. And that's what permeates all of this letter, is that from the very first day, they participated, they shared mutually in what Paul was doing in spreading the gospel. In fact, the verse that we like to quote for the assurance that we cannot lose our salvation, Philippians 1.6, for he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The context of that promise is actually talking about their giving to the Apostle Paul and their fellowship with him from the very first day even until now, that they were participating, they were sharing in his confirmation of the gospel and his defense. He is here before the... the, the uh, Roman government to give a defense for why he was arrested. There was one reason, one statement that put Paul in prison, and that was the belief that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So I, I don't want to assume this morning that all of you know who the Apostle Paul was, so I just want to just briefly tell you a little bit about Paul. His name originally was Saul of Tarsus. He was, um, I don't think Tarsus is on our map. No, it's, it's over in, in Asia, minor. But um, the city of Tarsus was a very Greek city. And it was a university city. And Paul was highly educated. The Apostle Paul quotes uh, pagan poets all throughout his letters. You can see it sprinkled 
in his letters to Timothy. You can see it when he is speaking to the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers in Acts chapter 17 that he knows their writings. So he was a, an intelligent man. He was well-educated, but he was also a Jew, and he was a Pharisee. He was a part of the religious elite that had Jesus crucified. The very first Christian that was put to death, Saul of Tarsus was there confirming and consenting unto his death. So to think about this man radically changed. This is who's writing this letter. He became the most influential figure for Christianity in the first century. One of the greatest defenses for the Christian faith is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. He had absolutely nothing to gain by becoming a Christian. In fact, he says in Galatians, he tells a little bit of his testimony. He says, I was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my forefathers, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond my contemporaries. We would like to say that he was walking up the corporate ladder. He was getting promotion after promotion because of his zeal for the law. In fact, his conversion, he was on the city, on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians to compel them to deny Jesus as the Christ. And they were shocked. His conversion was so shocking that when he came back to Jerusalem, the apostles thought he was just feigning a conversion so that he could have them arrested. And it was Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement, who introduced him to the other apostles. So that's the man who is writing this letter. This is a very, very unusual greeting that we just read. And it may just seem very mundane to you and I at first glance, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to the saints who are in Philippi, who are in Christ Jesus with bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. That just seems like a normal greeting. But I want to show you what a normal greeting actually looked like in the first century Greco-Roman culture. So if you don't mind, you don't have to, you can just listen to me share it. But turn to the book of Acts, and we are just going to read simply the greeting so that you can see how different, how Paul took what was traditional, what was cultural, and he transformed it into something unique, distinctly Christian. And really, that's our call today, to live in a culture that's pagan, to live in a culture that's lost, and to take what they know and what they do and to Christianize it, that is to transform it and to make it a supernatural tool by, by, by which we can reach people for Christ. So look what, with me in the letter that is drafted in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 23. They wrote this letter by them, and this is the traditional Greco-Roman way of writing a letter. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. So it addresses who they are. Look what Paul does in his greeting. Paul and Timothy douloi. It's translated bond servants or servants, but it is the Greek word for a slave. One who has absolutely no rights. One who is subservient to a master one who has surrendered his will and his choices to someone who he is indebted to. And then he says, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Look at this letter. It says, to the brethren that are in, in Syrian Gentiles. And then it just says, greetings. That was the typical way of a salutation in a Greco-Roman letter. Let's look at one more example. So let's jump over to Acts chapter 23. And this is the letter after Paul had been arrested and he's being sent to Caesarea for safekeeping and a holding there until a trial can be held for him. So if you'll go to verse 26, Acts 23 and verse 26, we see these words, Claudius Lysias. So here's the one who is writing the letter. And then it tells who he's writing to. To the most excellent governor Felix. That's all it says. And then it says, greetings. That's all it says. Paul takes that formula 
and he elaborates on it, and he fills it with rich, deep theology. He tells who he is. He identifies it as a slave of Jesus Christ. He writes to saints who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, grace and peace comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. He fills it with theology, the source of peace, the source of grace. Our inclusion in the body corporately is because we have been baptized into Christ. His slavery is because he now belongs to Christ. I would like to just contrast this greetings with Paul's other letters and see if you can see the slight changes, the slight, the, the little nuances that are true for Philippi, because this letter, this greeting, is setting the tone for things that Paul has to address in this letter. And so this little salutation that we just read, it is profoundly different from any other salutation. And it's profound, but it's very, very subtle. So if you'll just keep your finger there in the book of Philippians and just turn one back, book back to the letter to the Ephesians. We're only going to have time to look at several of his salutations. So let's just go over to the book of Ephesians and read that salutation. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Let's go to the next book, the book of Galatians. So just keep flipping back with me. Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, neither through man, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father, who raised him from the dead. Let's go back one more letter, 2 Corinthians, and we'll, we'll stop after this, but I, I just want you to see just this pattern that's unique in the letter to the Philippians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So let's just jump back over to the Philippians, and what do we see here that's different? It's subtle, but it's very, very important to understanding Paul's purpose in writing this letter. Paul and Timothy slaves of Jesus Christ. I can see Barbara nodding her head. She sees it. She's picking up. Yes, the light went on. I hope the rest of you are not sleeping and the lights are going on. He links himself with Timothy. No other letter does he do that. And every other letter he calls himself an apostle. It was a position of authority. It was a position where they had to recognize him and submit to what he is writing. And in this letter, you can see the friendship. You can see the intimacy. You can see the humility. You can see the unity. And those were things that were lacking in the church at Philippi. Unity and humility. And so he starts out this letter leading by example. If you and I want to lead, if we want to have an influence on people around us, the best way to do it is to lead by your example. People will watch your life. And as Christians, we can turn the world's expectations on their head because the Gentiles, they lord it over those who they lead. It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be first, let him be servant of all. And whoever desires to be chiefest, let him be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Paul takes a term that would have been the the last thing that anybody in the Roman Empire wanted to be identified as was a slave. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 
the Philippians were very, very proud that they were free people and that they were not slaves. When Paul went to the city of Philippi and preached, they arrested him with the charge that he is bringing things that are not lawful for a Roman to hear. He, being a Jew, exceedingly troubles our city. And yet Paul writes to this city that was so proud of its being a Roman colony, Roman citizenship, and he identifies himself as a slave without rights, without the ability to defend himself. In fact, if you were arrested as a slave, they could do whatever they wanted to you. They could mutilate you. They could torture you. They could crucify you. And Paul says, I and Timothy are co-slaves. He doesn't say, I am over Timothy. I'm higher than Timothy. I've got a better position than Timothy. Timothy and I are slaves. So he was contrasting himself with what the culture expected around him. Paul, as a Christian, was completely turning what was normal on its head, arguing for greatness, squabbling over positions. In this salutation, he addresses the need for humility. If you'll turn over to, to chapter 2 and verse 3 and 5, we can see where Paul was, was immediately, the onset of this letter, addressing an issue that he's going to confront head-on in chapter 2. In chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Let nothing be done through conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And so where was Paul placing himself? He was placing himself as a slave, and his interest was in the people of Philippi. And now he's encouraging them to follow his example. If you want to lead people, you lead it with a servant's heart by example. Verse 4, let each one of you look not on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. That's exactly what a slave did. A slave was not concerned about his own interests. He was concerned how he could please his master. Jesus tells a parable about a slave who goes out and he works all day long, and he comes in from working, and he doesn't expect the master to feed him. No, he prepares the food for his master, and then he eats, and then he says, I am an unprofitable servant. I simply did the things that were expected of me. And that's the kind of people God will use to influence others. People who will say, my rights are not important, my privileges are not important, but I am here to be a blessing and to serve others. And he's encouraging the Philippians to do that very thing. The second thing that Paul is doing here, he's giving an example of unity. Him and Timothy are both slaves. It's in the plural. Only in this letter does Paul co-author it and then call himself a slave. Paul knew that there was an undercurrent of disunity in this church. And so how was he going to quench that problem? He was going to be an example of unity. And this is what God expects from you and I. The greatest example, the greatest impact that we can have as Christians is by our unity. Jesus prayed for this in John chapter 17. The biggest scar, the biggest black eye on Christianity is that we can't get along with each other. And Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, Father, I pray that you make them one, just as I and my Father are one, so that the world might know that you sent me. When we as Christians love and have unity, it is a testimony to the world, something that they do not have, and hopefully something that they will envy. So in 127, we can see this hint, or 128, 27 and 28, this hint of this disunity. He says, only let your conduct 
the uh, King James has a, a different word for conduct there. It has your conversation. That's an that's archaic word that, that meant the way you live your life. But Paul is using a unique word here. It's a compound word. And the first part of this word, let your conduct, the way you live, if you look it up in a Greek lexicon, the word means how you live as a citizen of a country. And he's reminding them in this book that your citizenship is from above in chapter 2. And how do we live as citizens, not as a Roman citizen, not as an American citizen? How do I live as a citizen of the King of Kings, the greatest empire that's going to span the globe one day when Jesus comes back? How do we live as a, a citizen of that? Let your conduct, your life as a citizen, be axios, worthy. May it measure up to what the gospel says. You are a new creature in Christ, and that's the way to live our lives. Let your life of this citizen match who you belong to. Yes, we are saved, free from having to, to, to promise God I'm going to live a, a, a perfect life here on after. But we are now to put on the new man, which is created in Christ Jesus, and we are to put off the old man. That's how we live the Christian life. And so he gives a little bit more, so that whether I come or whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. So the way that they were going to live their citizenship from heaven to honor and to glorify the gospel was to be in unity with one another. Let's flip over to Philippians 2.2. Paul says, I want you to fulfill my joy. Now, how were they going to fulfill Paul's joy? Well, the little participle tells us exactly how they were going to fulfill his joy. By being like-minded. So simple, isn't it? Paul says, this is what will fulfill my joy. I want you all to be like-minded, to have the same passion, to the degree that you are mature and walking. Walk by that same rule and have that same mind, he says in 3, 15 and 16. And then in 4, chapters 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, I implore Eodia, I employ Synthache to be at one mind with each other. So throughout this letter, even though it was a great church, there were some problems. It wasn't perfect. There is no perfect church. So let's kind of summarize what we just looked at by being a slave and including Timothy as a co-slave with him. You and I are slaves. We are to be servants to one another. Our greatest asset and our greatest testimony is our unity to the world. Being a slave to Christ, it sets you and I free from the tyranny of self-indulgence. What a blessing it is to be a slave of Christ. It sets us free from the rule of sin. It sets us free from striving for approval from people. It sets us free from anxiety. Being a slave of Christ sets us free from fear. It sets us free from trying to measure up to other people's expectations. We're slaves of Christ. That's who we answer to. It sets us free to forgive. It sets us free to be kind. It sets us free to be gentle. Being a slave of Christ sets us free to live for others' best interests and not our own. It sets us free to live sacrificially because it's all Christ anyway. So who does he address the letter to? The second part of verse 1. It's to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to break this verse down into three ways. One is the word all, the other is saints, and the other is in Christ Jesus. Every little word is important in this, this salutation. 
Paul is setting a precedent in this, this, this little salutation. Nowhere does it address, in any of Paul's letters, to every single member of the church. He's trying to draw them together. Look at me in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 1. Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine making request for you all. These are things that you would just sort of normally gloss over. But Paul is addressing all the saints that are in Philippi. And he says, I pray for all of you with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the very first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, just as it is right for me to think this of all of you, because I have you in my heart, insomuch in both my chains and defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of this grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for all of you, with the affections of Jesus Christ. There was a unity. There was a corporate group of people who were working together. And this is what Paul is encouraging here. It's to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Well, who are saints? What does it mean to be a saint? If you ask my wife, she would not say that I'm St. Patrick. <laughs> We think of saints, and that, that word is so colored by tradition, isn't it? And theology. But what the word actually is not, it is not a reference to their performance. It is not a reference to their sinlessness. It's not a reference to their striving. It's not a reference to their repentance or pledge to be better people. This is a transfer of identity based on their faith alone in Christ. We are to put on as the elect of God, holy, beloved, bowels of mercy and kindness and forgiveness and those things. We are to put off the old man and put on. But as a saint, this is a transfer of identity. This is who you are in Christ. So saints are people that have been set apart as the people of God who have a special privileged relationship with God the Father. That's who you and I are. The glue that holds all of this together is that little phrase, in Christ Jesus. That simple term makes theology and difficult passage so clear. Paul uses that little phrase 164 times in his letters. And the most prominent one is in the book of Ephesians, where God has taken and broken down the middle wall of separation between Jew and and Gentile and have made them one body in Christ. Our corporate unity, our chosenness corporately as a group of people is found in Christ Jesus. It describes the spiritual realm where we now live and find our spiritual identity. We are chosen ones the moment we believe and become a part of God's body, miraculously immersed or baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, who else was this letter addressed to? There was two offices that, that Paul mentions here in this letter, in this verse 1. It's bishops and deacons. Now, as you're reading through the book of Acts, you're going to have passages that you just say, I don't know what this is all about. I don't understand it. And there's one key element to interpreting and understanding the book of Acts. What is normative for the church age is going to be doctrinally explained in the epistles. And what happens repeatedly as a pattern in the book of Acts is to be a pattern and repeated in the New Testament. There's never again a time in the book of Acts 
where cloven tongues of fire rested on people's heads. There was never another time other than the city of Samaria where apostles had to come and lay hands on people in order for them to receive the Holy Spirit. There was never another time in the book of Acts where someone was preaching, and while they were preaching, they were immersed in the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages that they never know. So it's happening in different ways, different purposes, and Luke is trying to tell us that God is taking the Holy Spirit so it goes from Jerusalem to Rome. That's his purpose. It's not telling us things that the church ought to do or the ways that we're to conduct church polity in this age. But when it's a repeated thing over and over again, and then we find it in the epistle, and then we find it in instructions in 1 Timothy, we know that this is the normative church government that God has set up that we are to follow until Jesus Christ comes again. He has baptized us as a body of people into Christ Jesus, and God has ordained that men lead this church, the congregation, by the office of an overseer, and that deacons help in the service and the tasks of the church. Because this was Paul's pattern in every church that he started. He went and he ordained elders in each church, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 20, he calls for the elders of Ephesus, and now this letter is addressed. I really don't like the old... The, the, New King James and the King James translation of bishop because it gives all kinds of connotations. If we could just divorce ourselves from the Roman church or the LDS religion, what we think of a bishop, because that's not what Paul is talking about here. It's the Greek word episkopos. And culturally, the classic Greeks and the Jewish community use this term episkopos as someone who was an equal among you, who had the special task of oversight and shepherding. It was not a hierarchical notch. That's foreign from the New Testament. And so it's really found in Acts chapter 20 what this job was all about. And, and we don't have time to turn to Acts chapter 20 right now, but from, from Miletus, I don't know if that's why we don't have our map up there any longer, but from Miletus, Paul calls for the elders of Ephesus to come. And then, let's see if... I don't know. I don't have. Okay. Well, there is Ephesus, and I think that looks like Miletus right there. So Paul was there in Miletus, not too far apart. He's heading back to Jerusalem, and from there he calls the, F the Ephesian pastors, elders, overseers, bishops to come and meet him here at Miletus, and he gives them one last charge. And this is what he tells them to do. He says, elders, overseers, bishops, pastors, whatever term you want to use, I want you to take heed to yourself and to the church that he has purchased with his own blood. The context of taking heed and guarding, the very next verse says, wolves are going to enter in. And then he gives an infinitive to complete that verb. We are to shepherd. So the overseer, your pastor, my job, my responsibility is to protect and to guard you from false teaching and to feed you with God's truth so that you can grow thereby. That is the number one responsibility of any pastor. Now the deacons, they were men who were called together to, for the task of helping in service uh, Areas. The first time that this verb is used in the New Testament or in the in the church age is Acts chapter chapter Acts chapter six, and that is where they were a group of women being neglected in the daily administration of food. There was the Jewish women, Jewish widows, and there was the Hellenistic Jewish widows who were Greek in their culture, Greek in their language, Greek in their philosophy and thinking, and they were being neglected. And so they selected seven men to serve. Diako, the verb that comes from deacona, diaconus. So that's the idea of a deacon. Now, what is the, the source for all of our spiritual needs? In this greeting, it tells us the things that you and I need most from God. Out of anything else, we need grace, 
and we need peace. The normal word was greetings, period. That was it. We looked at those letters in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 23, and Paul is using a play on words. We don't see it so much in the English language, but it's only a change of one letter in the Greek from greetings to grace, but it has such a dynamic change of meaning in Christianity. Grace. Grace is not the normal word. It's greetings. It serves as an opportunity for Paul to richly give them theology. These two words are ones that give us the essence of the Christian life. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God our Father. Grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. The things that you and I need more than anything else is grace from God. Every day we need His grace. And what does God give us when we ask for His grace? He gives us peace. So grace, the definition for the word grace is favor that is free. That's what we get from God. We get favor from Him that is absolutely free. It's spontaneous. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. And grace is unlimited. Where sin abounds, what does grace do? It superabounds. It much more abounds. Paul changes this normal greeting further by adding the Hebrewism Shalom, Irene in the Greek, peace, the idea of peace. What was commonplace in a greeting has now been transformed and elevated out of its natural realm into a spiritual supernatural significance. Peace can only come at the price of sacrifice. When you're at odds with another person and you want to have peace with them, there's only one way. And that is sacrifice, where you give up your rights to get what you think you deserve. By taking that sacrifice, you then bring peace. And that's exactly what God did for us, a sacrifice that brought us peace. The source of all of this, ultimately, it comes from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is really the one who is greeting the church at Philippi. It's God the Father and Jesus Christ. He is the one who is greeting us today. In this greeting, Paul transforms what is usual and mundane into something that's extraordinary and supernatural. Paul allows Timothy to share the same platform he doesn't see him as a superior. He sees Timothy as his equal and as his peer. That's what Jesus Christ has done. He has abolished all false divisions between people. No longer bond or free. No longer Scythian or barbarian or Roman or Greco. No longer woman or man. He has taken those artificial bearers and he has made us one in Christ. That doesn't mean there's different roles because slaves continue to serve as, role, as, as slaves. Masters continue to, to serve as masters. But they had a completely changed outlook on life. Masters now longer, no longer lorded over their slaves. They treated their slaves with respect, honor, and fidelity, knowing that they had a master in heaven. Paul wrote to the slaves, he says, you are no longer a slave, but you are God's freed man. And he wrote free people, and he says, you're no longer free, you're Christ's slave. That's how diametrically opposed Christianity is to the world. So Paul takes this greeting and he transforms it out of the mundane into something that's supernatural. Something that, that, the, that the, with great theological significance, something that the Philippians needed to hear. From the very start of this letter, Paul attacks the stronghold that faces every one of us. Selfishness and pride. 
Those are the strongholds that you and I have to battle with. This is what brings division in every relationship. You can mark it down. You don't have to be a great marriage counselor to figure this one out. You don't have to be somebody who moderates at a business trying to be, bring people together. You don't have to look into a church and say, well, what's going on with that church? Why is there division? Two things, lack of humility and selfishness. That's where it boils down to. And Paul addresses these right from the start in a very subtle way. He does so by calling himself a slave. He substitutes himself on their behalf to shepherd them, to feed them, to sacrifice them. By mentioning to all the saints, he's unifying them in the great work of reaching the Roman Empire in the gospel. No longer divided. I'm addressing to all the saints. You are all partakers of this grace. We are all fellowshipping in the gospel from the very first day and from now. And when Paul was seeing people converted as a prisoner, they were partaking in that, and fruit was abounding to their account. So God's greatest work is done in humility. May it be our heart that this is what God desires for our homes, our relationship, our co-workers, and at North Valley Bible Church, that we would, with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Father, just take your teaching today. Holy Spirit, soften every heart. God, let us do self-examination. Let's not examine our neighbor. Let's not examine somebody else and say, boy, that sermon is what is for so-and-so. God, let's look into our own souls. You search us, God. You show us where we need to become more servant-like. You show us where we need to strive together for greater unity, Lord. You work through the power of the Holy Spirit and through your word and do your work for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.